This is a question-and-answer session with Joel, titled Meditation and Decisions, recorded January 10, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, are there any general questions? Yes. I was wondering what um, you think about ideas that come up during meditation. Not so much rant, I mean, ideas as, as far as relate to things you might do or problems that um, have been working out. And a lot of times what happens is that I'll get an idea. And it seems like a, it seems like a really good one. When I'm not thinking, of course, when I'm not thinking about it. So right. Just, and then it just pop in. It's a very common experience to find that when you're working on a problem and you're thinking about it too hard and concentrating, you don't get solutions. Solutions don't come and you get more and more confused. And when you take a break and forget about it, suddenly uh, a solution arrives. This is actually um, very common in uh, science. Many of the great scientific discoveries were discovered just this way. Heisenberg, who uh, made the first big breakthrough in quantum mechanics, was grappling with this for months and months and really frustrated and went off on a vacation. And on vacation, the whole answer came to him, you know. But uh, it's also seductive in terms of doing a disciplined meditation practice. Um, you can be sitting there and the, your mind can start really generating very kinds of creative thoughts and you can forget all about your meditation. So what my suggestion would be is to uh, think, of, uh, think of doing two kinds of meditations. One, your daily discipline practice, whether you're doing a breath meditation or whatever you're, uh, whatever meditation you're doing that's a meditation that's concentrating on some object. And during that meditation, resist the temptation to be carried away by any kind of thought. If you happen to have, just out of the blue, some brilliant thought that solves some problem, treat it as, as a distraction. Bring your attention back to the object of your meditation. If it was really that great, you'll remember it afterwards. Do you know what I mean? But then if you are grappling with some problem, uh, make a little meditation for yourself in addition to your daily discipline meditation and sit down and begin to meditate with your object. But then if a uh, creative kind of solution arrives, then explore it. So you can use that technique of of relaxing the mind uh, when you are faced with problems but don't don't let it interfere with that that daily disciplined kind of meditation because if you don't stick with that disciplined meditation uh your attention will never get strong enough to really become stable it'll you know it, you'll you'll you get a little bit of relaxation a little bit of calmness uh and then you'll never progress beyond that so I would do both things, but, but keep them separate and be very clear what you're doing when you sit down to meditate. I need to sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, go ahead. I had that same experience too. In fact, you almost mentioned it. You said it well. I found for me that when I'm a teacher and when I sit to meditate, my week is planned at the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying not to. But that's when it seems like the creative juices flow. And I've thought about it quite a bit. Why is that? 
and it seems like for one thing the seductive point you made that it's a it's a distraction you'll almost allow yourself because it seems like such a high quality thing to be doing is coming up with good creative ideas that points true and the other seems that just in slowing down and focusing um, something comes up something that's what comes up and, and it, when other times it doesn't seem to come up as readily I think that um, uh, if you're if you sit down to meditate and you and you conduct a discipline meditation session and you treat every thought as a distraction come back and at the end of your meditation if your week is planned great you know what I mean as long as as you're continuing to do your meditation if these things just fall into place they just fall into place fine the uh, the other thing that can happen similar to this is you start to think a lot of spiritual thoughts and you start to think a lot of thoughts about meditation. And that can be even more seductive mm -hmm. because it seems like you're doing your spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? But actually, in terms of this meditation, the whole idea is to free attention from any kind of thought. So even spiritual thoughts, which uh, in other contexts are very valuable, in this context still become a distraction. It's the, it's, it's really freeing attention from that whole grid that thought creates for us, uh, through which to see the world. And it just doesn't matter whether the thoughts are good or bad or high or low or spiritual or not or whatever. We're still operating with, the attention is still operating within that, uh, constructed reality. That reality is constructed out of thought and imagination. And the whole point of the meditation is to be able to, not to do away with thought, but to be able to experience the world uh, uh, without this uh, grid in front of you constantly. To experience reality directly, unmediated by any images or thoughts or imaginations. Then thought takes its proper place in your life. Instead of dominating your life, it's something that's useful. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit like uh, wearing sunglasses. Sunglasses are very useful when it's bright outside, and so you want to put sunglasses on. But if you walked around with sunglasses all the time, you would never see the true colors of the world. So it's very important in this meditation to train the attention to be still. That thought will still arise but not to be sucked into it. When meditation is still and stable, thoughts will arise in the periphery, they'll come and they'll go, but they, you're no longer seeing the world through them. So it's, it's really important to watch out for that, you know what I mean? Now, the other thing though, it's very interesting, uh, when you ask why does it happen that these great creative ideas come when the mind is relaxed, is because you've created a space for them. Mm -hmm. Normally, when we're thinking about something, we're thinking about it in an old habitual way. And we just keep going around and round and round. And it's a sort of activity, there's no room, there's no space for anything new to come in. And when the mind settles down, when attention becomes quiet, then there's suddenly room. Now, it's something that you can then, uh, as, I, as I said before, you can make a special meditation to do that. It's also something you can apply very informally in your life. You know, when you're grappling with some problem, go for a walk. Mm -hmm. And this is a common sort of almost cliche thing, you know, 
to go out and go for a walk and clear your head. We have expressions like that. Then finally, there's something else to watch here. And that is, uh, and it's very important and it's very subtle, to watch how decisions are actually made. In other words, how a solution comes to some problem. We believe, we think that we make decisions. This has to do with our sense of having a will, a self-will. And it's one of the strongest, um, uh, this belief is one of the linchpins in our belief that we are some sort of actual entity self in there. And if you can observe how decisions are really made, you find that they happen spontaneously. No one makes any decisions. It's a process that happens. And when you can begin to see decisions being made as something spontaneous, then you begin to see that what you have called your will, and you've set up in contrast to the will of the universe, so to speak, if you want to think of it as the will of God or, or whatever, uh, you begin to see that everything actually happens the same way. The, the, your decisions are made, or say decisions are made, exactly the way the sun rises. There's absolutely no difference the way these things happen. And when you can start to see that, then this whole idea of a boundary, a line, a self that separates you from the rest of the world starts to become very transparent. Everything happens this way. Everything arises in consciousness this way. Spontaneously. No, no one is in there willing. It's a delusion. And you can see directly in your own experience, by, particularly by watching the decision-making process. It's hard to do because it happens very fast and it happens in, usually, you know, in a, in a mess of thoughts and so forth. But if you can slow everything down and just watch and not identify with it, you see this, it's magic. And then you start to see what uh, Owen Dowes may talk about, the spontaneous arising of the 10,000 things, you know, including your own thoughts, including all these decisions. So there's a whole area that's very interesting to um, explore and examine and investigate. The trick is to, however, to continue to think of your basic meditation practice as really a, a discipline like playing the scales and the piano. You know, you can start, once you start playing a few scales, you can start to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and it's more interesting than playing scales. But if you don't continue to play the scales, you never bring up uh, you never build up that strength in your fingers to really be able to play Mozart or whatever, you know? So it's fine if you want to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when you're not doing your practicing your scales, go play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But when you're practicing your scales, practice your scales. Good questions, very concrete questions. I like good concrete questions. Yes? I have, I have trouble with meditation. Um, for 20 years I've been doing transcendental meditation off and on. And then I went into to Buddhist Soto Zen for a while, where I stared at the blank wall. And then I went into Vipassana, and just listening to what comes up and let it go. Same with my thoughts. And then three years ago, when I started with Sri Ramana Maharshi, I started with Who Am I? And, um, and I found that real troublesome. I felt like I was hitting a brick wall because Who Am I? I never got an answer. I was trying to figure out um, who was asking the question, and then figured out this all this mind activity was going on, and that's not who I was. I was not the mind activity. Um, 
But when I sit down and meditate, if I have a struggle with who am I, I tend to go back to TM or go back to Vipassana. I, I have a struggle bouncing around. And since I read something that you wrote in one of the newsletters about consciousness not being in me, but me being in consciousness, just in the last couple of days I've been meditating differently um, with who am I and all the sounds and all the sights happening in in this big realm of consciousness, which is complete reversal that I've never thought before. So that just adds to the confusion as to what am I supposed to be doing while I'm meditating, because I'm trying to figure all this out, which is all thought of. Which Ramana promotes as far as asking who am I is investigation, which is thought, right? Yeah, except that, you see, when you describe you're running into a brick wall, that seems frustrating to you because you have an expectation of the kind of answer you're going to get. You think you're going to get an answer that's a thought. Because you asked it in terms of thought. And actually, the you're never going to get a thought answer. Or any thought, or let me put it this way, any thought answer that you do get is never going to be a true answer. So, uh, it is very frustrating because there's an expectation. But if you continued the practice... You, what you find is this brick wall, this nothingness, this seeming emptiness that where no answer is coming from is, in a certain sense, the answer. Or at least is the window to the answer. Uh, but I would suggest, I think it's uh, dangerous to jump around in meditations. Then you, exactly what you describe, it gets confusing. And every time you sit down to meditate, you don't quite know where you're going to end up. You're going to be doing TM or you're going to be doing... Uh, Vipassana, or you're going to be doing this, you know, this practice. So I think it's very important to establish in your life a basic meditation practice. Um, whatever it is. I mean, I, this is whatever any practice anybody takes up, stick with that practice, at least for a good long while. I mean, six months or a year or whatever, you know. Um, what we recommend, uh, what I recommend here at the center is you start with a breath meditation. Even if you've been doing lots of meditations before. And, and you, uh, you start with that, and then you build on that, you know, conscientiously. So you, it's not a scattered sort of meditation. If you start with this breath meditation, it's very, very simple. The breath is something you can carry around with you all the time. You can do this practice sitting on a bus or something. Do you know what I mean? Um, and if you start with this and just and, and give up the idea anything great's going to happen or you know there's going to be bells going off or visions or whatever, you just stay with this practice and give up any expectations about what it's supposed to do, what's so, supposed so to happen. So if I come up with the thought of who's experiencing the breath, just let it go. Just it's a distraction. Yeah. It's just a distraction. I had a Tibetan meditation teacher once who uh, I was having this experience the whole world just disappearing. And uh, he said, well, that's interesting. If the world disappears, notice that and come back to the breath. <laughs> and it's very good advice. Later, don't worry about anything else at that point. Later, when you start to do other meditations, other sorts of things happen. But if you've established this, this basis, if, the, if you've trained the attention to be relatively still and calm, then you can use that stable, still, calm attention to examine other kinds of phenomena and you won't get caught up in the thoughts and you won't be fooled by the thoughts then you can start bringing in meditations like the Ramana Maharshi meditation which is an excellent meditation at a, at a more advanced stage mm -hmm. but my advice would be to start with some basic simple practice 
you know, and be very firm and disciplined about it. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to exhaust yourself doing it or try and do more than you can do in a day or in a sitting. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> very, very comfortable for you. It's the consistency of the practice that's important. And you build on that. And it requires some patience and fortitude and being gentle with yourself and not, you know, beating up on yourself because it's not going well or, do you know what I mean, or think I'm a bad meditator or anything. You know, what? all these are distractions. All these are, you know, and, it's, uh, and uh, on, at the same time, you know, not feeling proud. Oh, this is really great meditation and now everything's calm. You know, but it's all going to change. So whatever all these thoughts and feelings come up about the meditation, they all just come up. They're all just distractions. And you just stay with your practice. Stay with your practice. And then when true insight starts to come, it starts to come the way uh, we've been describing in terms of thought, although these insights aren't necessarily in the form of thought. They come spontaneously. They don't ever come when you're struggling to, to get to them. You know what I mean? So in the course of meditation, then you can have spontaneous insights. And as you change your meditation, uh, after you've built this basis, uh, you know, a meditation like Ramana Maharshi's, then you're, you're no longer, you've had all this experience of meditating without an expectation of anything particular happening. You won't get all frustrated because you feel like you're running into a blank wall or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. You'll just be able to ask the question, who am I? Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to sit without feeling, oh, I gotta have an answer, you know? And then as Ramana Maharshi describes it, then attention returns to its source. It itself discovers its source. Nothing that you do about it just naturally returns to its source. Yeah, you've been trying to make it happen. Yeah. This is the great paradox of the spiritual path. We are trying to make something happen. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get beyond the sense of a self that's making things happen. So in a certain sense, the self is trying to transcend itself. But the self can never transcend itself. It's the very activity of trying that is perpetuating that sense of self. So all you can do is just do the practices. <laughs> don't, don't worry about how they work in a certain sense. You just do the practices. You know? okay. Yeah. What you're saying before about not making decisions, that we don't make decisions. I want to decide about that. You want to decide about yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I mean, not, I'm not like getting that. Um, I mean, we are rational beings in this daily world, and I make what I believe to be plenty of rational decisions in the course of my daily life. Um, what do you mean? Well, first of all, when I say this, it's. Um, not something I want you just to accept because I said it or believe it or anything. It's a challenge. You say, I'm a rational being in this world and I make rational decisions. That's how you experience yourself, right? Part of me. Okay. So uh, my challenge is, oh, this is what you believe. I don't believe this. You believe this. If this is what you believe, then there's several things to test that. First of all, uh, watch the decision-making process very carefully. Pay attention. See if it's really uh, true that you make decisions. Now, part of that, then, is to find out who is the one that's making the decisions. 
Who is this rational being? You, if you believe there's a rational being in there someplace doing this, the, the, only, the only question I have for you is, who is that? Go find out. I mean, and, and you can be as concrete or as subtle as you like. I mean, I could ask you, what color is this rational being? And what flavor is this rational being? What shape is this rational being? You see? Uh, I could ask you, what, what's the, the mood of this rational being? Or the, the, um, the emotional tone of this rational being? What I suggest to you, if you start to look carefully, you'll find there are moods, but they come and go. Mm -hmm. You'll find that there are thoughts, but they come and go. Mm -hmm. You'll find that there are even colors and shapes and all this stuff, but all this stuff comes and goes. There's no being in the midst of it all. Not a stable one, but in any given moment there is one. It's going to change in the next one. There, well, Not apart from... One. Well, apart from all these things, what is the being? Uh, let me give you another example. That bench that's next to you. Right? You see that bench there? Now, if I... Uh, that bench is made up of three pieces of wood and several screws, right? Now, if I were to take the screws out and lay the pieces of wood on the floor and put the screws out like that, what happened to the bench? Changed form. The bench changed form? There is no bench, is there? Anymore. Right. There's no bench apart from the three pieces of wood and the screws. And when we talk about a, about a bench, we just, we mean a form. There's actually no bench there apart from what, what it's made of, so to speak. What I'm suggesting to you, there's no being there apart from phenomena happening. Mm -hmm. And you can search through and sift through all this phenomena that's constantly impermanent, that's constantly changing, that's constantly in flux. So for one minute, it's there's this form, and the next minute, there's that form. I mean, all these forms. But you won't find anything substantial, solid, anything in there. You see, any entity in there. This is something to... Uh, it's an instruction for a practice if you choose to follow it. It's not a belief or a philosophical thing. You see what I mean? And the more you do this, and the more you discover that you can't find any real substantial entity or thing there, the more you begin to uh, realize that uh, this sense of suffering, of a victim that is suffering from life, is somehow false. There is no victim in there. There's nothing to enhance in there. There's nothing to protect in there. There's nothing to defend in there. There's nothing in there that you could ever say was born. There's nothing in there that you could ever say is going to die. You could say in a certain sense, all this is constantly being born and dying. Always. And the more you can experience your life and uh, the phenomena that flows through in the interplay as just this constant arising and passing away of, of phenomena, the less 
you feel this sense of being a self enclosed in some sort of boundary, uh, some sort of entity to whom things happen, uh, to, that acts and then is frustrated, you know, or comes into conflict. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I do. I understand what you're saying. And, and I, um, find that it's much easier to think about, um, who I am in that way when I'm at a, a long retreat or something like that. But my question, I, that all makes a lot of sense. But my question comes when, if I take that way of seeing things and I go to the supermarket, how am I going to decide what to put in the basket? You know, how am I going to, how do I know what I'm going to feed the kids for dinner? You know what I mean? How do you put that together with daily life? Wonderful. I mean, this is a, this is a wonderful place to do this practice when you go to the supermarket. Or you, or wherever the point comes where you sit down to plan. Now, for instance, I do the shopping in this household. I make up a shopping list before I go shopping. I'm planning, right? Very concretely. I go look in the icebox and I see we're low on milk and I write milk down. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, what I, I, I don't know how you do it. Do you make a shopping list like that before you go or do you get there and wander around? And... I usually make one and then lose it on the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever stage, whether you make the shopping list first and then go or whether you decide when you're there, make this into a practice, a meditation practice. Remind yourself, and you have to do this with awareness. In other words, you can take a little vow for yourself, saying, I'm going to turn my shopping trips into a meditation practice. And then when you get in the car to go shopping, you think, ah, I'm meditating now, right? Okay. Now, you then you just want to make your attention, your mind as calm as possible, and you want to be very observant. And then you watch yourself get out of the car, at the parking lot, at the shopping uh, store, at the supermarket. You watch yourself go in. You watch yourself put your hands on the shopping cart. You've done uh, like this sort of meditation, right? Walking meditation and stuff. Okay. So you just go into a meditative state here. Now, you walk around and you watch yourself buy things. You watch decisions being made. You watch yourself look at a shelf and you watch yourself, uh, you watch the mind say, oh, uh, chicken soup. Gee, I feel like chicken soup. You watch that happen. You watch your hand reach out, take the chicken soup, put it in the shopping cart. You see what I mean? You just become in that moment, in that activity, become mindful, just as, just as you are on retreat. It's more difficult because there are all these distractions. It's hard. The hardest thing to do is to remember that you're going to make this a meditation practice. But this is precisely the way you can take uh, what you learn on retreat, that kind of experience that you have on retreat, and integrate it into daily life. Bring that mindfulness into daily life. And I would recommend very highly, I think this is a wonderful practice to do, and you just have to find some device to remember that this is a meditation. You might, I don't know, the kinds of things you could do is if we, I make my uh, shopping lists, um, on, on little papers, little slips of paper that we keep uh, under the telephone there, you could go through and write on uh, the top meditation, meditation, meditation. So that when you picked up to, to do the shopping list, you'd see, oh yes, right, this is going to be a meditation. Do you know what I mean? Or you could put a little sign on your visor at your car or something saying, you know, shopping meditation. So that when you got in to go shopping, that would remind you. And you make it very specific where the meditation begins and then where it ends. So maybe the end is when you 
get all the stuff back into the car and you close the door of the trunk or something. That's the end of the meditation. Just like we use a gong here. Do you know what I mean? Make it very precise, make it very clear, and watch. And it would be a wonderful meditation. All these things happen, particularly this business about making decisions. And just start to watch. We believe life is so tough, especially when it comes to things like making decisions. We have tough decisions to make. And how do you know? And we grapple and we struggle and we have so much, we generate so much anxiety and tension uh, and suffering. And it's, it's actually very simple. <clears throat> it's actually not in our hands at all. We just don't realize it. This is what Ramana Maharshi means when he says, you know, when you uh, carry your bags uh, to the station, you have to carry your bags and it's, and it's, it's uh, hot and it's sweaty. I mean, in southern India it is, you know. And the bags are heavy. But when you get on the train, you can put your bags down. They go with you. If you're standing there on the train holding on to your bags, you're suffering from a delusion here. You're suffering from a fear that's unnecessary. You think if you'll put your bags down, you'll lose them. Well, truly speaking, your life is like this. You are on, if you like to be crude about it, God's train. You can put your burdens down. Do you know? This is what happens to people uh, when they talk about surrendering their lives to God. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, or Simone Weil, or do you know what I mean? The, or, or Sojourner Truth. She didn't have a big struggle about whether to go out and preach or not. God told her to go preach. And, and gave her her name. You're going to sojourn, so you're going to be Sojourner. And I'm your master, God is truth, so Sojourner Truth. Now, Along the way, it doesn't mean, you know, then everything was hunky-dory from then on in. She has a wonderful description about how she went to a revival meeting and an abolitionist meeting, and uh, these she was the only black person there, and these thugs showed up with clubs to break it up. And she went, everybody is running, and she went and hid herself. And she thought, you know, I'm the only black person here. Who are they going to come after? And, and she went and hid, and she started to pray. Now, this is like a meditation. And she said, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm God's servant. What am I doing hiding here? You know, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be getting up and speaking. Bingo. She got up. She started speaking and, and, uh, you know, the, the whole mob turned around. They started, all these guys with clubs started making everybody else shut up to listen to her. The story turned out good, but even if the story hadn't turned out good, you know, sometimes these stories don't. Gandhi got shot. I mean, a lot of good things happened, but eventually he got shot. It doesn't matter, though. That that sense of having to make a personal choice in conflict with the world is removed. It's removed by uh, an insight into how things actually really do happen. And so it doesn't mean that decisions aren't made anymore, that you're going to go around like a zombie and, and suddenly no decisions are going to be made. It means decisions are going to be made, but they'll be made effortlessly. They'll be made spontaneously. They'll be made not, not um, with a, out of a sense of conflict. And, they'll be, and when they're made, they'll be made completely and cleanly 
And so one of our other problems, when we feel like we're making decisions, we always then doubt that we actually make the right decision. And then we generate more suffering. You know, gee, should I really bought that can of soup or not? Maybe I shouldn't have bought that can of soup. Maybe I should have bought the more expensive soup because it doesn't have as much sodium in it. Well, but can I afford, you know, all this is going on. But when you can, when you see how decisions are made, the decision's made. You bought the can of soup. So we're really talking here about something about recognizing something about reality. In, in a certain sense, nothing's changed. It's always been this way. It's not like you're going to do something different. It's like you're going to see things differently. And in seeing things differently, in seeing how they actually occur, how they occur now, how they've occurred in the past, how they're going to occur in the future, how they really occur, that removes that fear and anxiety and restlessness about it, you know? Rational planning is still going to go on. But it won't, it won't be the struggle of some me in here groping dimly to make this happen. Because it never really has been that way. And that's where you see it. It's in the very concrete, practical, day-to-day situations like shopping in a supermarket. I, what a wonderful place to, to practice meditation. Spiritual paths are about reality. Nitty-gritty, nuts-and-bolts reality. The reality is sometimes very sublime. Very ecstatic. But it's also nitty-gritty nuts and bolts. And spiritual path is not about going off and spending the rest of your life in some sublime world of visions and stuff. It's about seeing that this nitty-gritty nuts and bolts world is itself sublime. And you can only see that in this nitty-gritty nuts and bolts world, you know? Going on a retreat is a training to come back and experience this in everyday life. Otherwise, what's the point? Then it's just sort of a spiritual vacation. You go off on retreat for two weeks a year and you have a wonderful spiritual time. It's like going off to a you know, spiritual Hawaii. And then you come back and uh, you know, you're, you're living in the, in the um, noisy, dirty city. The noisy, dirty city is itself the kingdom of God. So you, you go off from retreat in order because you can clear away a lot of distractions. It's easier to start to, to get the knack of how to see this, how to experience it there, but then you want to bring that back into your life. That's the most important thing. You see, these are really good solid kinds of questions. This comes down, and now we're getting, we're grappling with life, you know? These are great questions. And, and the place you find the answer is right there. The supermarket. The supermarket is a holy place, if you make it so. It's a sacred place, if you make it so. John, yeah. you're assuming that values um, which underlie all this will automatically be the correct values. But that, that takes a, a certain degree of consciousness. I mean, the person who comes out of hiding because they need to face 
what could be a gang of tormentors is at a high level of consciousness. I don't think that it can, one can, by giving up decision-making, assume that that high level of consciousness will take over. But I never said give up decision-making. You never said that? No. I thought that was what the question was about. No, no, no. I said watch decision-making. Watch how it happens. How did it happen for Sojourner Truth? She expressed it as a decision God made, so to speak. I can see if you, in any... It wasn't her choice, but the decision still happened. Yeah, if I, at any point in time, said what decision would God make if God were me, then it would be probably the highest... uh, just a wonderful pra- I've never heard it put quite so well. <laughs> what a wonderful practice. No, I'm serious. You know, you're sitting there wrestling with creative, you know, you I got a problem. Think, well, okay, what would God do? <laughs> but then you you you're what you're saying then is I'll choose the higher choice. I'll take the moral choice, which may not be what your spontaneous need is to do or your in, your insight what would be your insight if you let that insight bubble up? Maybe you need to take the wrong choice. <laughs> well, I mean, again, if we start getting philosophical, yes, in a certain sense you say people need to take the wrong choice until they stumble on the right choice. That's part of the you know learning process and whatnot. Um, but we're talking here about something about cutting through this whole dichotomy. How do you cut through this whole dichotomy? What's the right choice for me and what's the right choice you know, for somebody else? And, and you have... A, if you have an idea of what the highest choice is, and you choose something less, I guarantee you're going to suffer. It's called guilt. It's called, you know, or, or today we may, might not think of it as guilt. It's called you suffering from a feeling that you're weak, low self-esteem, I think we call it today <laughs> or something. Do you know what I mean? So uh, uh, it's, this, it's this, the suffering comes from this sense of conflict between wills. If, if if you can do this, if you can say, what would God do, and you just do it, you're free. You're free. Christina Feldman was uh, teaching in a retreat I was at, and she said something very similar to that that she used with her children. She would say to them, I forget the exact phrase, but it was the, the, the high part of you, or the goddess in you, or whatever the words were, sure. you know, when they were trying to decide what to do. And that was just similar to what you said. If you, let's take that example of Sojourner Truth as, as a metaphor for life. If you believe that you are a little entity self in there that's vulnerable, that, that is gonna, that can be, uh, killed or destroyed, that needs to be protected and so forth. And then you, and cut off from the rest of the world. And then you're in a situation where you're in conflict from the world. And then you go high. The, the, the thought immediately is, oh, I'm going to protect this little self in here, and so I'm going to avoid some suffering. But if that becomes the way you operate in the world, look what happens. You'll spend your whole life hiding. Whether physically hiding, or mentally hiding, or emotionally hiding, you'll spend your whole life hiding from this, this, uh, boogie being out there that is the world. You'll become a snail. 
You'll become a snail. It's very good. And guess what? It will be futile. Because somebody will tread on you anyway. In the end, you're going to die. In the end, the guys with the clubs are going to get you. Yes, somebody's going to crush you. So you, you spend... Now, this is a suffering life. It's a life that, that, because of delusion in the moment, looks like, oh, I'm avoiding suffering, I'm avoiding suffering, I'm protecting, I'm getting away. But if you look at the whole pattern, snail's a very good example of that. This is a snail that crawls into its shell and never comes out. Now, if Sojourner Truth had, I, I'll tell you this, if she had been killed in that moment, if she had gone to hiding and realized, wait a minute, what am I doing? This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. See, it's not, not what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, what I would like to do, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I'm God's servant. What am I doing hiding here? She comes out, she's free. <clears throat> she's free. She's free and she's happy, even if she gets clubbed to death in that moment. It's true. And you can take this as a, a metaphor for all of life. In every moment, if you're a step out of yourself, in every moment, if you do not what you would like to do, thinking of yourself in this and that, but do what is the, yes, the highest good, what's right for that situation, you're always then free. And you, not only you're always free, you're always out of that shell. You're, that is being out of prison. That is the highest form of freedom, the truest form of freedom. It's what Gandhi said, you know. What uh, the oppressor can have my body, can torture it and kill it, and all they'll end up with is a dead body. Never have my obedience. That's my freedom. Gandhi's, when he was in jail for years off and on, but he was always free. His body was in jail, but he was always free. But to live a life of fear and anxiety and always protecting this little self, you may not ever see the inside of a jail and you'll be in prison your whole life. These are, you see, these moral laws are, are like laws of physics. They're how the world works. The, if you examine life, this is, this is uh, the law, these are the laws of karma, the consequences of uh, Selfish action and the consequences of selfless action. Selfish action produces suffering. It itself produces it. It's not God gets up there and says, oh, you were selfish, so I'm going to send down bad luck on you. It's that action weaves the prison. The prison is made out of that selfish action. And it's, you know, it's like if you watch somebody you know, building a little prison around themselves, putting all the bricks in place, and they build it up. They're just doing it to themselves. And what you want to tell them is, you're not going to be happy when you build this little brick hut for yourself and stay in the rest of your life. And they'll say, oh yeah, but the world's too frightening out there. There's too many dangers. I'll be safe and I'll protect myself in here. And you can look and say, well, you're deluding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Um... All this talk about decisions, um, you know, it, it's it's very good, and I've been watching decisions for quite a while. Uh, but on a, a slightly subtle level, what happens when you're observing decisions happening, 
and maybe you don't exactly like the decisions that are happening. That that kind of sets up another will right <coughs> and it becomes a, a paradox of whether you should allow the universe to express itself through you through whatever karma you're expressing because of the you know that led to the decision you've made. Uh, and then, you know, are you going to set up a, another will to do internal battle over that decision? Give me a, a more concrete example of what you mean you don't like the decision, or, de, or okay. a decision you don't like. Um, with our, our precept of charity and stuff, mm -hmm. that, that's one that I still have some problems with. I, I've noticed a tendency myself to uh, go one of two ways. If I start giving, I see no reason you know, just not to give lots and lots, you know. So there seems to be this little protective reaction that kind of shuts me off from that. And um, so, like, it seems like the last couple of times I've gone to the grocery store, every single exit from the parking lot has somebody will work for food, you know. And I've just been noticing a real walling off of myself. I do not want to deal with these people. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to think about them. Get them out of my face. Uh, and I watched that happen, mm -hmm. okay? And then the precept pops up, and I said, oh, gosh, I'm not a very generous person, and this whole conflict starts. Mm -hmm. So the decision you didn't like was the decision... To ignore them. To ignore them, right. Uh, but, but this is the, precisely the point in the precept, is to show you that this isn't a wise decision. A wise in terms of happiness, to ignore them. This is just like building a little brick house around you. Do you know what I mean? It, look, our lives are made up of little things like this. We don't want to look at the homeless person on the corner. Do you know what I mean? We don't want to look this, this. We don't want to look this. Pretty soon, we're screening out reality. This is, again, building a little prison for yourself. Do you know what I mean? It's not the, the one time not looking at the homeless person on the corner or passing them up, but it's that that same principle will be at work through the whole of your life. And, and so you build, you end up, uh, I think all of us know people like this, people, uh, uh, older people who get to a certain point of life where they resent and hate everything out there, everybody who isn't pulling their own weight or they're all lazy, they're all bums, do you know what I mean? This is a bitter, embittered life you end up that way. Now, each one of those things we do unconsciously. We do because in the moment it seems the easiest thing to do. Do you know? It seems like you'll avoid suffering by just ignoring this person. The precept is there just to make you feel uncomfortable with that. Because the precept is reflecting back to a reality about this. Do you see what I mean? The precept is putting it in a larger context. And so the precept is designed to make you feel uncomfortable with the way that decision is make, is happening. But, but there, there's no end to it, because say I make a different decision. Say I decide that every time I see somebody with a sign that says, we'll work for food, I give them a dollar. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then it comes up, well, you cheap, why don't you give them $2? And then why don't you give them $10? Or why don't you give them everything in your wallet every time you see one of these people? There is no end to it. So it seems like on a decision level, something has to be made, and some decision has to be made, and no decision will be satisfactory. Well, yes, yeah, sure, go ahead. I, when I was in Mexico, there were beggars just everywhere, and every single one was so happy when I gave them, you know, a hundred, few hundred pesos. And 
that made me feel good. I felt I could uh, afford it. And it was a solution because I was doing, if everybody did as I did, I was not going to take responsibility for that person. But if everybody did as I did, they'd be okay. So uh, that that solved, resolved the problem for me. I don't have the problem in this, in this country. But well, okay, you just said now, this is a good, uh, a good uh, very practical sort of thing. What can you afford? It's a very nebulous thing. Well, but the, take this as a decision. Sit down, and you can only know by experimenting. You might, at the beginning of the month or a week or something like that, think, look over your finance and say, what can I afford in charity here? I mean, you have other responsibilities. You have a wife and a child, right? So it's not like you are in a position where you can just be like St. Francis. What can you afford? $20 a month, okay? You take $20 bills and you stuff them in some little compartment in your wallet, and every time you see somebody, you run and give them a dollar until the $20 are gone. No problem. The next time you see somebody, you don't have to look away or whatever. You just, you know, it's gone. It's in, you see, it's, it's, you, you avoid this uh, conflict by, by having a clear decision made. Have that, make, make that decision, try it for a month. You may feel, gee, I can give more. Well, then maybe next month you're going to give $40. I don't know what, you know, nobody can say for you what it is. Once you know, though, this is what I can afford to give, then you be ecstatic in giving. I mean, really, the whole thing can turn around where you'd be anxious to, to see somebody, you know, that you can help out, you see? And then once that's gone, no blame. If you've given away everything, I mean, all your, supposing you gave away your house and your car and everything else, and you're walking down the street, but you don't, you know, you meet another homeless person, you smile at them and wave, you just, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They give them. For their sign. <laughs> <laughs> so th this is the whole point about decisions, is that a decision creates a form. This world is, is a world of form, but it's a created world. We create the form, or the form is created. It is a creative process. So you sit down with your finances. Look at, look at your preset. Uh, look at the situation with homeless people. Look at your money. Meditate on it. Not, not during your formal discipline session, but take another session out. Decide, okay, $20, right? Make all this very concrete. Take the $20, go to the bank, get a specifically, you know, those $20. Do you know what I mean? Get it all very clear and run and go with it. It's when things are murky, when we don't commit all the way to something. You know what I mean? Commit to spending $20 every month on homeless people. So that the point where it's the 29th of the month and you still have $5 left, you have to get in your car and drive around and look for them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm serious. You see, I guarantee you, It'll turn the whole thing around. It'll turn the, your attitude around about uh, the people you confront, uh, your attitude about money. Everything will start to turn around. And what was a problem and a struggle and uh, a nuisance and an annoyance and all that turns into something joyful. That's called transmuting everyday life. That is what transmuting everyday life is.
situations that used to want to avoid because they were created suffering, now you look forward to because there are opportunities for happiness. To talk about not making decisions is really to talk about not identifying with the decision maker. But it has nothing to do with getting murky. Decisions, the, the clearer decisions are, the more precise they are, the more, uh, the more formal they are in terms of a form, the more beautiful they are. That's what, that's why this world of form is beautiful. It's, it, none of it's real, none of it's locked in, but it's the form of the dance. A beautiful dancer is one who dances precisely, you know? They go up in a precise night. A sloppy dancer who sort of doesn't quite know what they're doing is stumbling around the stage. That is not dancing. It's the precision and the beauty of the form, of the moving form, that makes it beautiful. That's the whole point of this, after all. Why do you think God's doing all this? So uh, this idea of... Uh, whenever you find yourself confused... Ask that. Is it, where does the confusion come from? Because there's been no clear-cut decision about the form of, the, of your life. I found myself in the same situation and decided to, to give out, made a conscious decision. And it wasn't just a matter of alleviating guilt, um, what happened was every time I gave out, a process started to happen. Everything, everything happened differently than I thought it would. Every time I give something to somebody, something happens because of it. I mean, just the process of communicating with them is, is wonderful. That is happiness. It, happiness doesn't come later as a result. That itself is happiness. That's like sitting there and taking the bricks down from your presence. And the light streams in, the more you take the bricks down, the more sunlight comes in, the more fresh air comes in, the more the beauty of the world's revealed. It's not like you're going to become happy after you take your prison down and then you're going to get a reward. It's in the process of taking the prison down that, that you uh, are exposed to all this. And it's in the process of building the prison up that you suffer. They write, they write they're the same thing. Okay, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close here, and you're welcome to have some tea and uh, check out the library, particularly if you haven't been here before, you should take a look and uh, stick around.